tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, we're back, and actually we're in one of my favorite parts of the Bible. I know that's kind of obscure, but the book of Samuel, First Samuel, I mean, I don't think many people say, oh, I just really love First and Second Samuel. I do. It's, it's a wonderful story. And, and so, well, let's just pray and get into it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's go to the big book on the coffee table, this exciting part. First and Second Samuel. All right, uh, this is First Samuel... 16, the voice merges. It's always exciting. It really is. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve for Saul, whom I have rejected as king of Israel? Now, this is very interesting. Now, mind you, mind you, that, that we're jumping, you know, we're kind of playing leapfrog, biblical leapfrog. We we jump over a passage. Let's see, what was yesterday's passage? Today's, we're in the 16th chapter. Yesterday, we were in the 15th chapter. Day before that, we were in Isaiah. You know, we're, we're getting little bits and pieces here. But this is to encourage you to actually read the whole thing. It's allowed, you know. It's not cheating if you actually open a Bible and read it. But uh, how long will you grieve for Saul? Now, remember that Samuel had wanted to put his own sons in charge of Israel. Uh in in the role of of judge uh i suppose the closest thing you can get to it in um in english is um commander it's it's generalissimo i don't you know kind of the military uh political leader uh so how long will you grieve for saul now he's all upset because the lord is removing saul from the kingship so so often we we do interject our own preferences into into obedience to the Lord, and we're in good company because Samuel did that. Do you understand what I mean? It's like, I, you know, I like uh, 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 this devotion. I really like it. So God must really like it. And God says, "No, we're, we're going to cut that one out now." But but Lord, you like this one? No, you like it. I like it, but you like it, and. You know, the cloud of glory moves on. And so, huh, he's grieving for Saul. And the Lord says, how long are you going to keep this up? I got a job for you. Fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse of Bethlehem. 
Uh, Bethlehem was a tiny town about five miles south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on the border between the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, and it was a city occupied by Canaanites at the time. There was no Jerusalem as we understand it. There was uh, there was uh, Salem, uh, uh, the, the town of, uh, of Salem. Uh, um, might have been called Jerusalem, but it was not uh, an Israelite town. So Samuel replied, how can I go? Saul will hear of it and kill me. He's grieving that Saul's going to be taken from off the throne, but at the same time, he's worried Saul's going to kill him. This is kind of complex. Well, the Lord says, take a heifer along and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I myself will tell you what to do. While Samuel did as the Lord commanded, the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and inquired, Is your, vis- is your visit peaceful, O seer? I've shared this with you before. A prophet was called a seer because he could see the spiritual realm. You know, we think of prophecy as predicting the future. No, prophecy is seeing the present uh, in, which, in which the future exists in seed form. That uh, again, I, I I share with you whenever I talk about prophets as seers, I share with you about Roy Showman, whose conversion involved a, a, a vision, an experience in which he became, in effect, a seer. He could see through the veil that separated the real world from the world in which you and I live. We like to think of this as the real world. This isn't the real world. This is a a shadow copy of the world as 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 it exists. And a seer can see that, and sometimes that involves uh, future, sometimes it doesn't. Well, they came trembling to him. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I know somebody who has a genuine prophetic gift, um, and uh, uh, she will call and say, Father Rich, I've been praying for you. Think, oh dear, what have I done now, Lord? Uh, this person has, has very accurately, and it isn't, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, to know a prophet and they could tell you what stocks to buy? That, that, that's not the way it works. That, that this prophetess <laughs> would, would be praying and, and the Lord would say, tell him this. And it isn't usually, you know, I love you, my child. It's listen up. And that's exactly what's going on here. So we, we see that, uh, um, Jesse and his sons cleanse themselves. In other words, they make sure they're in, in ritual purity uh, so that they can enter into the sacrifice. So all the sons of Jesse come before Samuel and uh, Eliab come. Surely the Lord's anointed is here. Don't judge. And then the, we should maybe have banners with this. The Lord said to Samuel, do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature because I have rejected him. Not as man sees does God see because he sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. That's enough. <laughs> I'm not going to stop talking there, but that's enough. You know, don't judge by appearance. Well, let's go. Jesse called Aminadab, Abinadab, and then Shammah, and then all of these sons. And Samuel says to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's one, the youngest, who's tending sheep. Samuel says, send for him. We won't begin the sacrifice until he arrives. Now, this is, you think that the Bible is saying nice stuff here about David. It's not. Jesse sent and had the young man brought to them. He was ruddy, 
a youth handsome to behold, making a splendid appearance. I wouldn't translate it that way. He was ruddy. In other words, he was red. And babies are red. He had the, he had the complexion of, of youth. He was, he was um, uh, you know, he was uh, baby-faced. That's almost, you can translate ruddy that way. And handsome to behold. The word here is yafe. I believe that word is yafe, which means pretty. There are only three men that I could tell of in the Old Testament to whom the word yafe applies. Uh, um, he, he, uh, one was David, one was his son Absalom, and one was Joseph when Potiphar's wife uh, uh, decided that she wanted to get to know Joseph better. This is not a compliment. He was a pretty boy. That's exactly what's being said here. That that uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a pretty boy, and uh, and he and then he made a splendid appearance. That word is, he looked good. He he he, he was good looking. Now contrast that with Sam with Saul. Saul looked every inch a king. Remember when we read about Saul? Um, uh, that he was he was taller uh, by a head than everyone, and he was a man's man. This this guy isn't a man man's man. He's he, he closer to being a ladies' man. Absalom and Joseph were both ladies' men. This is I don't think this is this is a compliment. When we read it, we translate it. Oh, David was gorgeous. No, David was pretty, and uh, he didn't look like a king. Uh, and we see that confirmed when he goes up against Goliath. Who? What? He's just a kid, you know. So this is uh, this is the Lord says, anoint him. There he is. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Now that's a fascinating, I, I didn't look it up and I'm going to look it up right now because I wanted to see what the Hebrew word exactly was. I meant to, but then I saw something shiny. Uh, you know, this idea of the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. Uh, okay. First Samuel six thirteen. Let me click on that and see what the Hebrew word is. Okay. Okay, uh, from that day, the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, we're getting the music. All right. Okay. I wonder if it means rushed. Um, let me see. Yeah, it means rush. <laughs> it means to, to, uh, to, um, uh, let's see here if I can get the root word. It, it, it actually can mean to cause to prosper also. It's a fascinating word. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord, uh, it can it can mean to 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 prosper someone uh it can mean to make them successful but i think this is an important thing that that, that it was the spirit of the lord that did this this wasn't you know saul was he was going to do it the spirit of the lord came upon david uh so i think that's a wonderful wonderful thing let's briefly go to the gospel uh, um, that Mark, the second chapter, the 23rd verse, uh, this is in a number of the Gospels, but Jesus is passing through a field of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees say, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? First of all, they're walking probably farther than than they should. You can walk between, uh, it's very complicated, you can walk as far as you want in a populated area, but to walk out into the country you can't walk more than a thousand paces from the house. Unless, of course, if you know you're going to have to go somewhere, you can walk a thousand paces, put a meal there, walk another thousand paces, put another meal there, walk another. And 
you see, where you take a meal, that's your home, so you're not violating Sabbath. It's It sounds crazy to us, but it, it's, again, putting a hedge around the, the law. So they're walking through the, the field of grain, and, um, well, maybe they're ameliorating their their transgression by eating something, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it's hungry. And they're violating the law three ways. First of all, they're picking grain, so they're harvesting. They are rubbing it in their hands uh, to get the husk off it, which means they are uh, threshing it, and then they would blow the husk away, which means they're winnowing it. So they are at least violating the law in three ways. They are working on the Sabbath by harvesting, threshing, and winnowing the nerve. Now, this is very, very interesting that um, a lot of people say Jesus was wrong in this. Uh, we read in the, oh, good grief, why do I, okay, uh, that he went into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest. David went into the house of God when, in the days of Abiathar, when, when Abiathar was high priest. Abiathar was not high priest. Uh, um, when uh, Abiathar was not high priest when, when David walked through. So apparently Jesus got his Bible wrong. Hmm, let's see what actually the text says. It doesn't say that at all. It says, uh, um, uh, um, during the time of Abiathar high priest, doesn't say during the high priesthood of Abiathar. What am I trying to say here? Um, when Dr. Martin Luther King, whose birthday we celebrated uh, yesterday, the holiday, I think it was, uh, it's, yes, that, but we celebrate on a Monday, so it, I don't know if it's the actual, actually, it's the Martin Luther King holiday. Saturday was his actual birthday. See, I'm being, well, there we go. We're celebrating the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. No, when the day he was born, he was not Dr. King. You see what I mean? We accord him the title. So, Jesus accorded Abiathar the title of high priest. He was not high priest when when David came to the, the shrine at Shiloh. Uh, but he was still Abiathar, who was a high priest. So it's it's an anachronism in which I believe Jesus is according the title to Abiathar as just as we would to Dr. Martin. When Dr. Martin Luther King was a little boy, well, when he was a little boy, he wasn't Dr. You, you see, the I have heard people say, well, Jesus clearly didn't know the Bible that well because he talked about David entering the shrine at Shiloh and Abiathar was priest. These people make me crazy. So, very interesting. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is why the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. I've told you the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus' divinity. And here, when Jesus is calling himself Lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming divinity and saying that this was made for man, that God rested on that day and allowed Adam to begin his life. So, I would like to go to another another thing, um, uh, another axe to grind. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who heard a wonderful sermon by a Chicago priest who I I will not rat him out, but his name is Father Matt. I won't say which Father Matt. But um, she said it was a wonderful sermon. She shared about the sermon. It was about all the, if, if I understood it. Now you're hearing this second, third, fourth hand. But all the problems we have. He talked about evangelism. 
And this, what I heard of that sermon really struck me. You know, we are wasting so much time fighting with each other over things that are important, but now fasten your seatbelt if you're driving, things that are secondary. If you don't know Christ, the rest of this is just political squabbling. If you don't know Christ. You know, we are in an incredible crisis in the world and in the church. We are. I mean, I, I don't think that that's a surprise to anyone. But the nature of the crisis, I think, really does center around evangelism. Um... The number of churches in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and I would say in most archdioceses, is reduced by about half. Uh, the church in this country is in retreat. And all we can do is is argue with people. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I, I watched a Catholic comedian, and I don't want to name, uh, he's usually pretty good. He was a little blue in this one, but he's not usually. And he, he says publicly he's a Catholic. But, of course, he referred to the scandals, and he referred to uh, the, the uh, uh, what's, how do I want to put this? He referred to, to just, you know, that, that um, yeah, it's kind of weird, but he's a Catholic uh, after all that's gone on. Then I was watching something about the influence of a very obscure YouTube thing about the influence of French grammar on, on uh, English French grammar and vocabulary on English, especially vocabulary comparing Norman French and Parisian French, which both came into obscure, right? But the guy who was doing it was very engaging, Englishman. He talked about the difference between the word warden and guardian that come from both, come from French dialects. And then the priest is the guardian of our morals. Yeah, yeah, right. And I mean, we are constantly as Catholics being bad-mouthed from both angles, you know, we we aren't demanding enough or we're too demanding. We're in crisis. And all we can do is sit around and argue with each other about Lord knows what. And none of it makes any sense to the world in which we're living. They're just theological quibbles as far as people... Uh, um, uh, outside the church are concerned. Haven't you read the Gospel of John when he says, Father, they may be one as you and I are one, that the world might know that you have sent me? All right, evangelism. What is evangelism? The best definition I ever heard of evangelism is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. You know, that that all of the, the prayers and the liturgies and the sacraments really mean nothing to anyone if they don't know the Lord. Evangelism, to bring people to a saving knowledge, not a theological knowledge, not a historical knowledge, not a political knowledge, a saving knowledge. What does that mean? You know, we laugh about, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's a pretty good question pretty good question. And the church, the Catholic Church, was the great evangelistic church of the world until fairly recently. And in many parts of the world, it still is. 
just not here, not in Europe, that we're coping with devangelism. And I think we really need to think about that to stop the nonsense, <laughs> stop the madness, as they say, and, and you know, let people be people. Bring them to the Lord. Now, you know, uh, okay, evangelism. It isn't telling people about Jesus. That's not what evangelism is. It's bringing them to Jesus. How do you evangelize? Very simple. If you can get someone to say you to the Lord instead of he about the Lord, you're evangelizing them. I genuinely believe that that to evangelize, the best means of evangelization is to pray with someone. I got a lovely letter talking about how a woman really sensed the Holy Spirit. There was a gentleman who called yesterday who was having a just a really rough time, and uh, and I decided to pray with him on the phone. Now, I think he probably knew the Lord already, but that's how you do it. That's how you evangelize. You listen to someone's problems, and you say, can I say a prayer with you? It's very rare the person who will say no. And if you can get them to speak to the Lord, the Lord will do the rest. Then all these things make sense. The word sacrament, I'm always telling you, means oath to the death. You, it's a covenant. You're pledging a covenant with someone. Well, if you don't know who you're pledging a covenant with, you're jolly well not going to pledge the covenant. So I think it's very important that we really think about evangelism and not just breaking people into small groups so that they can discuss the world's problems. That's not evangelism. Uh, getting them the sacraments. That's not evangelism. It's important. Boy, is it important. But it's not evangelism. So I'm going to grind this axe for a while about what is evangelism and how we do it because unless, you know... Um, well, I'll talk about it later. Let's go to a break and I'll come back with letters. Uh, and um, uh, you can call in at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Good question. Do you know the Lord? I'm not saying do you know about him. Do you know the Lord? All right, let us go to letters. Okay, well, this is kind of an interesting one. This is from David, which has more of a supernatural effect on one's or somebody's life. The written word of God, perhaps spoken out loud, or a given revelation, either through a spirit of discernment or through the leading of the spirit. You know, uh, it isn't a one or the other. However, the the idea of uh, the spirit of discernment or through the leading of the spirit, 
You know, I'm always telling you about my Pentecostal, uh, Catholic Pentecostal roots. Um, and those phrases are very dangerous because you have to remember the scriptures are clear. Every word is, com uh, is, is, every word is proven by two or three witnesses. So when a person says, well, I felt it in my spirit, I, I don't really care about that. You know, well, God told me. I don't really care about that. I want to know, how did God tell you? And without the confirming presence of the scriptures and the consistent teaching authority of the church for 2,000 years, we have a well of teaching that, that's 2,000 years deep. And uh, if you come up with a new thing, which Father Branken always accuses me of doing, but nonsense. Uh, if you come up with a new thing, well, where is that in the 2,000 years? Where is that in the scripture? Where is that in the teaching authority of the church? So we confirm by two or three witnesses. There's a wonderful uh, kind of comparison about uh, tradition the teaching authority of the church, and and uh, uh, the Word of God as guides. You know, the written Word of God, the Scriptures. Uh, certain harbors have a very difficult uh, entrance, very dangerous. And so you'll have more than one lighthouse. You'll have one, two, maybe even three lighthouses. And the pilot of the ship in the night, when he lines up those three lights in there as if one light then he knows he's in the safe path into the harbor. So just this idea of, well, the Lord told me, well, how did the Lord tell you? And how did the Lord confirm it? So I would say that the, the speaking of God is absolutely essential in our life. But when you ask me, which is greater, the scripture or the spirit of discernment? If I had to choose between uh, one, one or the other, I would choose the scripture. Uh, even that can be dangerous because it could be my own interpretation of Scripture. That that without the two thousand year well of 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 the magisterium, and magisterium means means teaching authority. Magister is a teacher. Magisterium is is the teaching. That's that simple. The two thousand year well of church teaching, the Scriptures, and 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 uh, uh, this the inner prompting when they all line up. Well, then we can be fairly certain and understand. First Corinthians, the 13th chapter says, our, our knowledge is imperfect and our prophesying is imperfect. You are never going to get it 100%. Even I, the reverend know-it-all, am never going to get it 100%. And so I, I recommend taking it with great humility and always being ready to say, oops, I guess I, guess I didn't get God right in this. So... Uh, you know, so it's an interesting question that you ask, uh, David. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let me get another one. This is an interesting. Well, they're all interesting. It's Saturday's Gospel about Jesus eating with sinners and saying that the well don't need the doctors, but the sick do. Where does the church teaching about the need to be in a state of grace to receive the Eucharist come from? It comes from this long well. Uh, we, we read, do, Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Jesus wasn't giving them the Holy Eucharist. He was calling them to repentance. And and that's different. You know, that that uh, uh, that the greatest sinners are, are those whom Jesus invites to his table. No, no, no. 
Jesus wasn't inviting them to his table. He went to their table. Jesus did not invite the great sinners to the Last Supper, except for Judas, who left when Jesus confronted him. No, in those parables where Jesus eats with sinners, he's going to their table to bring them out into the light. So don't think that Jesus invites evil people who persist in their evil to the Eucharist. No, no, he goes to where they are and brings them out. He doesn't, he doesn't invite them to his table. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Let's see here. I think I can do another letter, another letter. This is kind of an odd letter uh, from Doris. I didn't quite understand it. It's about a dream um, that she had and uh, in which she was protected from great harm by this fellow. And um, uh, she, she identifies it with with uh, an angel, a guardian angel. And she says, what types of people get archangels as guardian? I don't know that anybody gets an archangel as a guardian. I, you know, you got to understand, angels love being transparent. Um, they are messengers. That's what the word angel means, a messenger. And uh, if you, on a hot summer day, when you are thirsty and you've been working in the yard and you go over to the garden hose and you turn the hose on, you take a drink and the water is hot and tastes like plastic, you go, ugh. No, you let the water run and you get the hose taste out of it. And then you drink that cold, clear, fresh water. And you don't say, oh, what a wonderful hose this is. I wonder what the hose's name is. You know, I think, I, oh my goodness, this is a very special hose. No, you're just thinking about the water. You see, angels really love transparency. Um, and I think that we need to understand that. And I think, were I able to behold an angel, I would assume it was an archangel. Angels, from what I hear, are very, very large. <laughs> very, very large. And, um, um, they're very powerful and uh, and very scary, uh, unless they appear in a form that is small and unscary. So uh, I don't know uh, if anybody gets guard archangels as guardians. I've never been. Uh, I, I don't pretend to know a lot about angels. I'm just grateful for them and that God in his mercy has given me a guardian angel. And I think when I've really been in a scrape, I've had one or more. <laughs> I've had more than one helping out. So there you go. I hope that helps, Doris. All right. Uh, one more letter. One more letter. How's that? Oh, by the way, 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. I want to do this one, one more letter. This is from Robert in Chicago, and he was watching a mass on YouTube uh, that was, you know, interesting. And um, uh, I'm becoming lost as to what's right and what is wrong in the mass. And welcome to the club. I mean, these are very strange times in, in, in the life of the church. And, uh, I would say that, that, well, there's somebody who says what you, you say what's in the black and you do what's in the red. And I think something that really struck me uh, that I read uh, about the Roman liturgy, the Roman liturgy is supposed to go for noble simplicity. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb. But why I really want to mention this, about this, is, is uh, 
this is exactly the problem I'm talking about in, when I spoke about evangelism. I don't like the way you say Mass. You don't like the way I say Mass. I don't like this. I don't like that. You don't like me. I don't like you. Uh, oh, this is Christ. <laughs> this is the attitude we need in the church to say, well, no, this isn't my cup of tea. Um, but it's wrong. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's not what I would do. Uh, and so, you know, I think in this very difficult time, we have to really give it to the Lord and say, Lord, it's your church. Do something. It's, <laughs> we need you. <laughs> Lord, we need you. And, and, uh, um, I think we can get very upset coming at each other from all sides of the discussion and it's not pleasing to the Lord. You know, uh, it's as if we're a family coming to the table at Thanksgiving and mom and dad are sitting at the head of the table and dad is sitting at the head of the table as my, my very Teutonic father always did. And all of the kids are arguing saying, no, the glasses go on that side of the plate and it's just a squabble. You know, it's not pleasing to God. I think that that should be the question on everybody's on everybody's uh, mind. Is this pleasing to God? Is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Am I doing this for the Lord or am I doing it for the show? Am I doing it for the Lord or am I doing it because this is what I like? The question is, is this pleasing to God? In the Gospel of John, Jesus always says, I do what is pleasing to the Father. I usually do what's pleasing to me. So, you know, these are grievous times, and I think we really need to ask the Lord what is pleasing to Him, especially in our own relations. Uh, again, uh, Father, that they may be one, that you and I, that they may know that you sent me. All right, we're going to go to a break. I'll come back with a word of the day. Oh, phone calls, 888-914-9149. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. goodness amazing amazing okay let's see here if i got the right thing I, before we march on i wanted to talk about a march and uh you know our annual hashtag fast for life is coming up this friday so you can tell us how you plan to pray and sacrifice for the unborn at relevantradio.com slash fast we're doing this in solidarity with the march for life and, um, you know, I always remember what Abraham Lincoln said, if slavery isn't wrong, then nothing is wrong. And I would paraphrase it for our times. If abortion isn't wrong, then nothing is wrong. And that's the point of it. There are people who want to say nothing is wrong. You know what? 
there are some things that are wrong. Surprise. So join Relevant Radio and Solidarity Health Show this Friday for the hashtag Fast for Life at RelevantRadio.com slash fast. And you can claim your free download of The Choice is Love today. All right, let us go to letters. Oh, word, not letters. We did letters. Word of the day, word of the day. Yes, I have a wonderful word of the day. The bread of the offering, we read. That's just kind of a funny way to put it. Uh, that David went to the house of God, and it's epi, It's upon Abiathar, Abiathar the high priest. Now, that would imply, during the times of Abiathar, high priest. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean when he was high priest. That's not what the text says. Upon Abiathar, high priest. So, and ate the bread of the offering. What do you mean the bread of the offering? That's a fascinating word. The word is, pro, pro, I think it's pro, prosthesis. What, let me look at, let me find it in Greek. It's uh, um, <laughs> prothesis. It's, it's the presentation, the bread of the presentation. But in Hebrew, it's the bread of the face. That's literally what it means. The word panim means face, but it means presence. When you're face to face with God, it's an anticipation of the Holy Eucharist. The bread of the presence, there were 12 loaves. They used to call it the showbread. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's the bread of the faces, or of the bread of the face. Uh, if you, uh, a little old Jewish grandmother might come up and squeeze the cheek of him and say, Shane upon him. Well, that was, David was a Shane upon him, which means a, a, a pretty little face. So, that meant the presence when we're looking at each other face to face and the high priest the, the the bread of the presence was changed regularly and the priest not necessarily the high priest but the priest on duty i believe would bring out the loaves of that had been in in representing the 12 tribes of israel present to the lord and he would hold up these loaves and say behold god's love for you and i think of that often when i say behold the lamb of god so the bread of the presence, the bread of the face, that we, God wants to be in a relationship with us face to face. I think that's cool. All right, let us go now to phone calls. Ahoy! Wendy from Orange, are you with us? Wendy. I am, Father Simon, so I have a big good, question good. for you. Oh. Um, I love ador adoration, but I don't mm. know anything about it. So my question is, what's the meaning and reason behind the cape that the priest wears that, and he doesn't touch the tall part of the monstrance? Ah, yes, 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 the humeral veil. In the... Yes, okay. the humeral veil, that's what that's called, it's, which means it the humeral that... Oh gosh, those things started long, long ago. The, the, the long, um, usually the, you wear a cape, which in Latin is... Uh, uh, the English word for it is cope. It's that is the most ancient, uh, or a form of the most ancient form of the chasuble. In fact, is the Church of the East that's what they wear at Mass. Uh, the, the 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 cope, which is the one that goes all the way down to the floor. And the chasuble was actually a garment, an ancient Roman overcoat that went down on all sides, almost to the floor. And it was called conical, not comical, but conical, a conical vestment, and very hard to negotiate. So sometimes it would be open in the front so you could move your hands, sometimes in the side so you could move your hands. But that that cape that the priest wears, the long one, the cope, is is very ancient form. And I would assume that the humeral veil is very ancient also. 
because there were certain things that the grubby little hands of the slaves couldn't shouldn't touch and so things would be brought with a cloth you put the cloth around your arms and then you you touch that which is precious to bring uh to uh someone important um in fact i think i've even seen old old icons where the magi are carrying things with a cape i, I can't remember that i have to look it up the reason the priest blesses you with the humeral veil and he's holding the monstrance with that 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 short cape the humeral veil is because he's not the one blessing you, Jesus is, in the Eucharist. That's why the blessing is done with a humeral veil. The priest's hands are not touching the thing with which you bless. Only Jesus is. Does that help? Well, so that's just during the blessing part, because then he takes Jesus out to put him, you know, um, yeah, back in yeah, the you usually use, and he doesn't, yeah. he's not wearing it then. That's, so it's he, to hold he, him up so, he, so that Jesus yeah, can give us he the can, I, Often a priest will wear the humeral veil when taking the, the, the Blessed Sacrament in and out of the tabernacle. And that's just a gesture of respect because it's a biblical principle that what is sacred is covered. That's why women wear more clothing at Mass than men traditionally because they're considered more sacred. They're the, 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 they're the, the, the givers of life in a unique way. So and that's why we cover, traditionally covered the chalice, and, and that was never abrogated uh, by the liturgical movement. Um, what is sacred is covered. That's a biblical principle. We see it in the Ark of the Covenant. So priests will often use the humeral veil. I don't know if that was, was required liturgically. I have to ask somebody who knows the old rite better than I do. So does that help? Well, thank you very much. It helps so much because I love it, and now I understand it more. It thank is you. beautiful. And yeah, it's just Jesus is blessing is you in his, in his Eucharistic presence. It is. We've got all this beautiful stuff in the church. And, uh, you know, if you don't, as I'm saying, if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't make sense. But when you get to know him, it's wonderful. All right. Well, God bless, and thanks so much for listening and for calling. Who do we have now, dear voice, in my head? Greg from Kewanee, Wisconsin. Greg, what can I do for you? Greg, hey, good afternoon, Father. How are you doing today? Yes. Considering oh, all things very, pretty very well. Cool. Oh, gosh, it's yeah. Very, it's very winter in the Midwest. I'm, I'm, okay, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get my daughter to listen to you in Alabama on her app. And, and, oh, my. And I've been struggling trying to teach her Matthew nine sixteen through 17. About the Matthew, wine sack. Yes, Can go you on. help me out here, my, my friend? Matthew 9, verse 16 and following, correct? Okay, yes. okay. Let's see. I hope she's, oh, listening. Yeah. I hope she's listening. <laughs> I'm trying to All get right. I told her you're a great father. Oh, this is an interesting one. This I have a strange take on this. I really do, okay. uh, and and I'm I I wouldn't I wouldn't trust me to be right on it, <laughs> but uh, um, the the idea of old wine and new wineskins we read in another version of this, uh, um, that that uh, let's see here is it in Luke we read that uh, uh, that no one having tasted old wine prefers the new wine. That's in the Gospel of Luke 5.38. No one after drinking old wine wants new, for he says the old is better. And you know, I, I'm the only person I've ever heard who's ever said this, and I'm probably wrong. But I, I think that, that in, in the context of Luke, you might think that 
Jesus is the old wine. He's the real thing. You see, Judaism is more more appropriately called rabbinic Phariseeism. And it developed in the exile in Babylon, the synagogue. I always point out the synagogue did not exist in the Old Testament. There's no reference to a synagogue in the Old Testament. The synagogue was a way to be an Israelite without the temple. And Babylon, they couldn't go to the temple, so they developed places of meeting. That's what synagogue means, the meeting place. And then when the temple was destroyed, the synagogue was the only expression for for Israel in exile. And so this rabbinic Phariseeism cultivated how to be an Israelite without a temple. And I, I got this from my dear friend Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace, that uh, he said that uh, you Catholics, you're more Jewish than we are. You've got temples and sacrifices. We don't do that anymore. We believe that the important part is the ethical and moral content of the Torah. And I always wanted to say, Rabbi, <laughs> every page drips with sacrificial blood. Are we reading the same book? You know, that 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 uh, um, we have... We believe the Messiah came and reestablished the temple, a temple made of living stones. And we offer the sacrifice of Calvary, the, the, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Eucharist. So we continue the sacrificial order, whereas Judaism does not. And in a sense, rabbinical Phariseeism was an innovation. So that's one possibility. Now, uh, new wine and old wineskins, it's interesting. This is the only place in which new wine is mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, this, this, uh, oinos neos. There are two, two words for new in Greek. One is, uh, one is kainos, uh, which means renewed. And that's the, the New Testament is the kaini diathiki, the, the renewed testament. But neos means it's never been done before. So it's, it's kind of a novelty. So I, I think it's kind of complicated, but new wine and old wineskins, um, that, that, um, in a sense, uh, the old, if you look at this in, in Luke, we say the old wine is better, and the new, the the, you know, we we think of uh, patching cloth. Uh, that cloth was very valuable in the ancient days, and so you would save old cloth for the very purpose of patching. So uh, Jesus talks about the old as being valuable and not just the new. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but. That's I have an odd take on it. Does that help a little? It 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 does, but I have a little different take on it there, Father. Oh sure. To let you know. I'm I'm sure. thinking it's like Jesus was now this is a parable to Jesus. It's a parable. Mm-hmm, yeah. And he's saying yes. I am the new wine. I am mm-hmm. the new wine. Don't put me in that old wine sack because it ain't gonna work. Well, it's you funny because in Matthew, that's the take, that's the implication you, put me you in get. A new wine sack and I, that's my thought. I don't know. Well, in 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 if you read it in the Gospel of Matthew, that's exactly what he seems to be saying in Matthew. But if you read it in the Gospel of Luke, it seems like Jesus is the old wine. And what's the truth? Well, Jesus talks in another place about the wise steward who's able to bring out the new and the old. So people say, "Oh, Catholicism, it's all that old stuff." Yeah, that's good stuff, but. Our lives with Christ are new. We we have a new life with Christ. So in a funny kind of way, I think both are true. That Jesus is the old wine and Jesus is the new wine. He's the best wine. So I suppose, I I don't know if that's an interesting thing. Have your your daughter 
send me an email if she has more questions on this because I'd love to discuss it. And tell her, please, to take everything I say with a grain of salt. I'm the only person I've ever heard give it that interpretation. But I think it can be said that Jesus is both the old wine and the new wine. He is the Old Testament fulfilled, and he is the New Testament uh, uh, given with his blood. So I hope that does help a little bit. Uh, to, to think of these things is... Well, it's always interesting. I love this book. Oh, and thanks for listening and thanks for calling. So who do we have now, dear voice in my head? Dave, how can I confuse you? I mean, how can I help you? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to confuse me on this one. I know you know the answer. Oh, dear. I don't. (laughs) Oh, dear. That's why I'm calling. It's a a jurisdictional legal question back in the day. Uh, Okay. I was always under the assumption that the Romans... Uh, were the only ones that had the authority to issue the death penalty. Yet, uh, Herod took the life of John the Baptist, and his father yes. killed the innocents. Why yes. did Jesus have to go back and forth to Pilate and Herod? Uh, Herod was getting frustrated because uh, he he couldn't get what he wanted, and finally Pilate had to wash his hands and, and uh, give up the, his uh, uh, Jesus' uh, life. I think you know the answer to this. I'd like to know it. Well, it's really kind of simple. That two two possibilities here. One, that, well, they didn't always follow the law that strictly, but more probably that the death penalty was reserved to the Romans and those to whom they gave the right. over a Roman citizen, no one had the death penalty, the right of death penalty, except someone really delegated by the emperor, even Romans. The Sanhedrin did not have the power of execution. That was not one they had. But you have to remember that the Herod family was actually raised in Rome on the Palatine Hill in the imperial palace. These, these were close associates of the Roman emperor, and the Herods would have had uh, uh, jurisdiction uh, to execute someone. Uh, because they, for all intents and purposes, were the Roman government. They were not in an adversarial relationship with the Roman government. They were, they were I think most people don't realize that, that, that the grandsons of Herod were raised in Rome on the Palatine Hill in the, the house of the emperor, that uh, they were raised personally by Octavian Augustus and Livia. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, they were hand in glove, so they would have had the right to execute someone or they wouldn't have gotten in trouble for doing it. And speaking of the right thing to do, the right thing to do is to stay here and listen to Drew because he's coming up and he will be far less confusing than I can ever be.